With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Welcome to Tennis.com podcast, Inside the Tour. I'm Nina Pantic. And I'm Irina Falcone. This week, it's just us talking about the WTA Finals in Singapore, about having to defend a lot of ranking points, as that's kind of a really big topic at the end of the season right now, with Zuhai, Singapore, and the ATP Finals coming up. Um, and then we're going to talk about on-court coaching and what it's like to win your first title and the pressures of playing in a tournament final. Okay, so this week is the WTA Finals in Singapore. It's kind of a unique tournament and something I want to talk a little bit about. Um, not too much depth just because it's going on right now and every match, it's a round robin. Things are really confusing. But the point is, it's eight players in Singapore in this beautiful location and they're all playing in round robins, two groups. And it's just like really unique and really different. And then everyone kind of wrongly assumes that the season's over after it, but it's not, right? It's not over at all. It's actually got like three more weeks of tournaments after. I know for a fact that um, I was talking to a friend of mine, Bjorn Fricangelo. He's a male player. And uh, I asked him, I was like, so how long are you on the road for? And he looks at me. He's like, I'm not going to be back until after Thanksgiving. It's not even November yet. So that just goes to show how many more tournaments he's still got to play. And um, there's actually another tournament called Zhuhai, which is, I guess, the second tier of the WTA finals. It's for players from 9 through 16. And um, my friend Madison just left today, uh, and she's going to participate in that. So there's still a lot of tournaments um, to be played. Um, It was the weirdest thing. So many people ask me all the time. They're like, oh, WTA finals. That must mean that must be the last one. I'm like, not even close, but... It is for the top eight players, pretty much. I mean, it feels like it never ends. The season literally never ends. It doesn't. It doesn't. With Singapore and Zuhai, though, the other interesting fact is that those points, you get a lot of points, like anywhere from, I think, like 300, 400 points to 1,500. Um, Zuhai, maybe a little bit less. But a, a large chunk of your points will sit from this tournament and sit there all year long. And then just if you don't make it next year, because you got to be top, what, 10, top eight for Singapore, top at least top 20 for Zuhai. They just drop off. They're just gone. I mean, it's just, it's like, oh, awesome. I have all these points, but like, oh my God, if I don't make it next year, I'm going to lose hundreds at one fell swoop. And this year they dropped off early. I mean, that just seems like really like a lot of pressure. Yeah. I saw um, Coco Vandaway. She was actually playing Zhuhai last year and she made the finals and she lost, she played against uh, Gerges in the finals. And uh, I saw that because of the one week difference her her ranking points have already dropped off but you know this is that's a sport one good week is all it takes to get right back up where she was before part of me thinks you know what after having a bad year i mean there's a ton of players who've had bad years including we'll talk about jack sock as well part of me is almost like you know what it's kind of a relief right you've had all this pressure to defend all these points 
you didn't do it. I mean, that's totally okay. It happens, right? And then when you start over in 2019, it's like a fresh new slate. You can just start over and you're going from not the ground up. You're still ranked high, but you get to move forward without any of that pressure. You're like, okay, now I'm just going to go for it and not be as panicked. Is there any truth to that? Trust me, I can definitely relate to that. I'm going through that at this time. So <laughs> I can definitely uh, strongly relate to everything you just said because, yeah, it's like, okay, I didn't defend the points, but hey, it's a free week the following year. I know that I'm going to be gaining a lot of points if I do well in that specific week. It almost feels like you have a second chance and like you have a little bit of space to breathe, right? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of... Um, Young players, for example, I remember speaking to uh, Luisa Sharico. She also trains here at the USTA uh, Lake Nona Center. And um, we were talking just after she had defended, um, sorry, we were talking after she had played a wonderful tournament in, um, in Madrid. I think she made semis. And then uh, the following year, obviously, it, it's hard to defend those points, especially as the first time getting all those points accrued in literally the span of two weeks. That's pretty much where you, all your points are located at. So you try and do well the entire year. And if you don't, all of a sudden deadlines come up and you're like, oh crap, I just lost 400, 500 points. And now instead of main draw, I'm in qualities of this Grand Slam. It's just, it really sucks the first time you have to defend a lot of points. Trust me on that. <laughs> it changes so fast too, because you're, you have this high of winning a tournament or having a big week and then you're kind of dreading that week coming around the next year. You're hoping to get a big result before then to kind of buffer. But if you don't, you're like, oh, my God, it's like D-Day. It's coming. Oh, yeah. I remember the first time I was defending in the uh, U.S. Open. And I was defending, I think, third round. And I played a qualifier first round who just came out, like, out of gates running. And I was just a deer in the headlights. It's like I'd never played tennis before. And I lost. And all of a sudden, I went from, like, 70 to, like, 150. I was like, well. Wow. That, that was great. That was enjoyable. <laughs> brutal. It's brutal. But then you just keep going. You do. Um, you, you try and just come back the following week and try and do a little bit better and a little bit better. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, I guess it's, it's a double-edged sword how quickly it can change, but it's also really great how quickly it can change for the positive. Um, so you go and you have like a good week. And for example, Amanda Nesimova, she was out for a couple months this year because of her right ankle. And um, she came back, and I think she's top 100 right now. And, you know, this was someone who wasn't playing that much, um, still super young. But, you know, you come back, have a few couple weeks um, that you do really well in, and boom, you're top 100. I mean, it can happen. And it's all about perspective, right? Like Jack Sock, who is going to drop out of the top 100, um, he's got, well, assuming he doesn't win Paris next week. But in his case, he's defending... I mean, 1,000 points next week and then 400 points at the ATP Finals, which he can't even play because he's not going to qualify. So he's losing 400 no matter what. Let's say he loses all those points. He's going to go down and have only 360 points to his name and drop to the 150s, which he hasn't been that low since 2013. I mean, that just sounds brutal when you look at it that way. But I think a lot of it's perspective. I think when he when – it's going to ha- – I mean, if it happens, right, it's like you're prepared. You're a little bit prepared for it. And then you're like, I've got to adjust myself – and change my perspective because 150 or 100 or even 200, I mean, whatever, is still really good. You're still in the top 200 players in the world. You're just not where you thought you were last year or where you were six months ago, and you're, like, always taking a step back, right? But it's, I think it's a lot of its perspective. Right. I, I totally agree with you. And who knows, you know, after winning 
uh, Paris last year. I think he was pretty much the underdog, and I believe he was down even in the first round, came back, won, and won the entire tournament. I mean, it was definitely a Cinderella story for him. Um, who knows what, going, what was going through his mind after that tournament, after the ATP finals? I mean, who knows whether, like, you know, that happened, and all of a sudden he starts thinking, like, oh, gosh, like, I have to defend these points next year. And I know that it may sound crazy. It's a year away. But trust me, it goes through your mind. I think the one thing that he has to kind of take away, though, is the fact that he did win Paris last year. Granted, it's a new year. Granted, he hasn't had a great single season, but he can play. He is top 20, not like top, I think, 30 right now. So whether or not his points drop off, he's got to just take into consideration the fact how good of a tennis player he is. You know, he's so talented, so skilled, matter of kind of honing all those things together. The ability is obviously there. He's ranked number 18 right now, is meant to drop to number 23 next week, and then after Paris is when things get a little bit more dramatic. It's, I don't know, a lot of it is just mental. He's in the ATP finals of doubles because he um, he and Mike Bryan won Wimbledon and the US Open. I mean, that takes a certain caliber of athlete and player to win two doubles Grand Slams. Yes, alongside the best in the world, but he's also one of the best in the world, as much as he hates being called double specialist. He's not a double specialist, but you know, I think there's something there. Like that's an insanely good year, regardless. The skill is there. There's no doubt that he knows how to play tennis. I mean, it's not an easy feat to win one, yet two Grand Slam events. And uh, I know that he'll get there eventually. And um, it, it's up and down. For anybody that's listening, I mean, that's why it's even more credit to those players that can maintain top 50, top 20 for such a long time. Because let's say all those players that are top 20 and whatever, obviously they had to have some pretty good results to get there, right? But then to come back year after year after year and defend those points and improve on that is just, it's remarkable. That's why it's the longevity of the sport. Like if you've actually been out here and been a really good player, whatever that term, whatever ranking you may think a good player is, to be out here and just continue to defend points and keep doing better and keep getting better. I mean, good for freaking you. That's awesome. So true. So true. It, it's You get so used to seeing players like certain names, you know, like Wozniacki or maybe um, Chilich. These players are just constantly in the top 10, constantly in the top 5, top 20, I mean, for sure. And it's just you don't realize how much goes into that and and scheduling is one big part of it because like if you don't defend your points one week maybe you got to add a tournament on and in this case with with Jack Sock though he's playing the HP finals uh, doubles so he can't play this big challenger in Houston Um, the men's tour after the finals doesn't have that many events the women's tour has quite a few it has three full weeks of WTA events smaller ones but still a chance people to pick up points um, right at the very 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 end of the year and then there's Fed Cup and Davis Cup finals. And then there's like, what, literally 10 days before 2019 begins. I mean, it's just chaos. And now the people are shoving in like uh, exhibition matches everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's a lot. It's so funny. I um I recently saw Anika Beck just posted a statement regarding her retirement from tennis. And um, it was brought up by Bjorn Fertangelo, whom I spoke about earlier. And he uh, he was telling me, he's like, yeah, she's my age. She's 25. And I'm thinking, I'm like, wow, to make a decision like that, to retire from tennis at 25 is very rare in today's world. Back when Martina Hingis was playing, when she was already like winning slams at like 14, 15 years old, 
maybe it's a little different story. You've been playing for at least 10 years. But, you know, Anika Beck, she, she posted a statement saying, you know, I just decided that there are other things that I wanted to do that I enjoyed more. My boyfriend was saying, he's like, you know, good for her. If there's a sport with a turnover rate of like wanting to retire that is super high, it would be tennis. He's like, you know, if I was coaching someone, if for some reason I was a tennis coach one day, he's like, I would want them to play no more than two tournaments a month. And I was like, even that's a lot. He's like, yeah, you're right. You have some players that are playing anywhere from 10 to 15 tournaments a year and still like top 20 in the world. AKA Serena Williams. <laughs> I was just looking up Nadal's record this year. He's only played nine events and he's number one. That's pretty good. Nine events. Nine events. That's it. That is pretty good. I mean, you also have to think of the fact that four of those events are two weeks long for those guys. True, true. And the amount of uh, stress and the amount of toll that it takes on your body after a slam. I have not witnessed it. I have not experienced it, but I have definitely heard about it from players, um, close friends of mine. I know Madison, when she told me, she's like, you know, I made semis of the U.S. Open or in uh, semis of the French Open. She's like, all I wanted to do was sleep. I just slept for like 36 hours straight afterwards because I was just so tired and mentally, physically, emotionally exhausted. The slams actually feel more like three weeks when you think about not just be, not because they're playing qualifying, but because everyone gets there so early. Like you just said, Madison left for Zuhai now. I mean, it doesn't start until I think the 31st. So, I mean, it just people forget that you're actually getting there for big events super early. And like you're living that full life of training and a hotel and and being all engrossed in the tournament preparation about a week before. I mean, it's it's a huge chunk. Yeah, there goes the year pretty much. <laughs> We were talking about defending points um, and having that first pressure. There's a few players last week who won their first title. Uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas won in Stockholm and Kyle Edmund won Antwerp. It's kind of weird. I kind of assumed these guys have both won titles before. Definitely Kyle. I mean, they're both top 20. But it's their first title. It's kind of a big deal for them. But winning your first title, I mean, no matter where it is, if it's going to be, you know, Stockholm and Antwerp arguably are smaller events and arguably the big players weren't there because... They're prepping for the finals and for Paris. But still, full credit, first title, big deal. I mean, you never forget it, right? Honestly, um, this is going to sound as cliche as possible, but a win is a win. Um, I always say that, you know, no matter what, even if it's first round of a, 10K, of a 15K or a 50K or whatever, honestly, to be out there and get a W under your belt, that's, that's a good day. Um, to win a title, that's a really good day as well. Um, so ever since I was little, I was always instilled. It's like, you know, no matter how big the tournament, no matter how small the tournament, you know, a win is a win. A match win is a match win, no matter what. It's still going on your record. Um, and for these guys, I mean, it's awesome. The feeling to win that first title it is truly awesome. I won mine in 2016, and it was pretty special. I had my boyfriend there, and it was just the two of us, and it was so much fun. Um, to kind of share that with him. And then we took a shot of tequila right after to kind of wash away the entire emotional roller coaster that we had just been through because it was a heck of a week. And, you know, I'll just tell you right now, I remember right after, after the win, I got back to my hotel room and, uh, you know, obviously in a high, I'm getting messages, I'm getting calls from several people. But the first thing I decided to do, I actually had to go and, uh, pull out of a tournament, look at flights, 
had to get my prize money. There's just so many little things that you actually have to do in behind the scenes, like after after a win or after a tournament that people just don't really know about. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was really exciting. But um, I'm sure, as you know, you're you're already thinking about the next week. Yeah, both both Edmund and Tsitsipas are playing this week, and just you know, business as usual. The tournament just keep going; it all resets from zero, and it, you just start over. What's what's the feeling like? So, if you're going into a final, a lot of people. I mean, I have always looked at it as like losing the final is possibly worse than losing the semis because you watch the person win and hold the trophy up. What's the feeling when you're going into a final? Do you feel that extra pressure because you're like, wow, like I really want to be the champion here. I don't want to walk away second place. I mean, yeah, I was uh, I was pretty nervous, but I mean, I will say, I don't know if I've ever actually said this before, but the day of my semifinals, which was the day before, uh, I was playing Lara Rubarena, and my car, I had a car take me to the site instead of the bus. My car got stuck in traffic, and I don't know if you have ever heard of Bogota traffic. It's some of the worst in the world, and... I ended up missing my warm-up for my um, before my match, and I arrived about 30 minutes before my match. So anybody listening to this as a tennis player knows how stressful that is. Like you may think, I'm like, oh, you still have time. No, I usually arrive anywhere from two two and a half hours before a match to warm up in the gym before my warm-up, then actually go on the court to warm up. Then you shower, you eat something, you chill, and then you have to go back out to warm up for the match. So half an hour was definitely not enough. So I was in the car literally freaking out, trying to call the supervisor, please change my match, like just make me second on, I beg you. It didn't happen. So I had to go out and I barely got time to dress and like change everything. Went out, played my match. And by that time I was just like, this was a win. Like if I don't win tomorrow, like after the match, I was like, if I don't win tomorrow, you know what? The fact that I got through today is just such a feat. And uh, the following day, I made sure I was there, like, I think, like, five hours before the match because I wanted to make sure I was there. And, uh, yeah, I, I will say, like, I that entire week, I was very, very, very nervous. And uh, Travis, my boyfriend, kept saying, he's like, you know what? It just means you care. When you're nervous, it just means you care and you really want it. Um, so he would always, like, give me really good pep talks right before my matches. So... Yeah, I was nervous. There's no doubt about that. But I mean, more than that, I, I didn't really want to think more than that. I was just like, you know what, just play your game. And I was actually down 4-3 in the third, 15-40. So yeah, it was uh, it was nerve wracking. <laughs> but you get this special milestone to hold on to for the rest of your life. I mean, winning, an AT, winning a WTA title is something you're going to cherish and have forever. I mean, that's no matter what happens with your career moving forward, even, you know, if you win bigger tournaments, your first is always kind of crucial and like the most memorable I would say I mean obviously not for players that have won like 15 grand slams but you know for like other players <laughs> yeah absolutely you never forget your first right right um and then let's talk about Singapore a little bit more so it's going on this week but what's been the most interesting aside from obviously the top eight women in the world competing at the highest level of course is the coaches have been a lot more involved they had little press conference with the coaches They've been part of like WTA videos. You don't really hear that much from coaches until maybe, I don't know, US Open, they started doing interviews with the coaches. And then the on-court coaching debate has been obviously front and center. Um, all the coaches have been asking about it. They're all kind of split. Some of them don't want it, some of them do. Some of them think that 
it should be the same as Fed Cup, where they're just on the bench the whole time. What's your take? What do you think? Should there be more coaching, all Grand Slam? Should they be on the bench with them the whole match? What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I would probably say, you know what, in Davis Cup, Fed Cup, the coaches are there. If you want to talk to them, you talk to them. If you don't, you don't. So the only thing I will say that if they're there the whole time, you kind of do feel pressure to talk to them. Even if you're like losing 6-0, 5-0, you're like, all right, I don't really want to talk to them. But if I don't talk to them, it's going to be weird. Like there's just way too many things that could happen. I think that the rule now where if you want your coach to come out, it's fine. Like you can have one time per set. I don't mind that at all. In a grand slam, it's probably going to be difficult just because of seating arrangements, to be honest. If they're going to be sitting in the box or whatever, and this is assuming this is a big court, but if they're going to be sitting up where somewhere in the stands, it's going to be hard for them to actually get to the court. By the time they get to the court, it's already going to be called time. So honestly, if, if it were me, I would probably see about doing like some sort of survey for all top 100 players and just see what they think. Because you'll see like the top players, they almost never call their coaches. And um, obviously, they don't have a problem with it during slams because... Uh, it's never been an issue, but in the qualifying, you know, there's been a lot of debate back and forth, but I don't know. I'm kind of split as well on this one. What about you? What's your take? Well, I will admit that I kind of live for those videos with the player and the coach are having their, their changeover chat. I think it's incredible. And it's just so, it just brings me back to my junior days and of the, of the things that the players and the coaches are talking. Obviously the coach is all the talking, but you kind of, you hear their perspective and a lot of times it's very standard stuff, focus, take the ball early, be more aggressive, blah, blah, blah. But sometimes it's just so funny. Like when Philip DeHaze in Moscow was talking to Kasatkina and he was telling her to be the Russian wall, that was so funny. Best video ever. So funny. And it worked. It Honestly, I'm not saying it, that she wouldn't have won anyway. She, she may have. I mean, she was down a set and a break to Cornet, who she should have beaten. So I think in that case, I think it... it it turned things around for her a little bit, maybe, but I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say that he changed the course of the match, but it was just such an incredible moment and something that fans would latch onto, right? And that was one of Patrick Mortoglu's points when he released his statement about the whole Serena coaching thing from the U.S. Open. He was saying, hey, you know what? Fans will like this engagement and to see this behind-the-scenes stuff. And I'm like, I agree. I think it's awesome to see these moments. But sometimes the changeover coaching moments are very awkward and, like, you shouldn't be part of that. So I don't know. I'm also torn. I think there should be a very clear-cut line. Like, one, they've been doing this since 2008. This isn't new. They've had on-court coaching for over a decade at this point. Having them come on the court during changeovers once per set, I think is fair, because you only really, you don't need them every set. You don't need, you don't need them on the bench. That's too much. Um, but to have them at Grand Slams, it's weird to just have it at every tournament except Grand Slams, is what my thinking is. I say have it at all the tournaments the same. And I also think that the boys should have the same option, because it's weird that women can have a coach and the men can't, like, what, we need more coaching, like, we need more guidance, the men don't, like, they're tougher, like, this seems a bit biased and strange, and I feel like hearing a, a, a player, a male player, reacting to their coach could be even more entertaining, obviously, maybe not for the most positive reasons, but I want to I see both, I want to see it all equal and standardized. I think you're right, I think it should be something that should be implemented in the ATP, but once again, I want to reiterate the fact uh, I just want to go off what you said earlier about uh, Kasatkina's coach. I mean, honestly, he just inspires me. I've seen him talk to her a few times. There's been other times where they've recorded him. And he just fires me up. Like, whether or not he even knew anything about 
tennis, you know, he just gives her so much energy, gives her so much confidence. Like if I, I honestly, I was watching the video and I was like, you know what? Yes, Daria, like go out there and be that Russian wall. Like you got this. Like I was excited for her. Yeah. And you wouldn't have gotten that without having him on court to give her this pep talk, this incredible genius, yet a little bit awkward pep talk that I, I think even like junior players watching this will be inspired. I mean, you're inspired. That's awesome. But other people will be inspired. Players of all levels will be like, you know what? I can do this. I can win this match. Like I can play tennis really well. I can be like Dart. I can be a wall. I mean, it just it just seems like a lesson that everyone got because of that moment that was shared publicly. But a lot of coaches, yeah, a lot a lot a lot of coaches also say things like, "Hey, we don't want to be front and center." But like, come on, we're not we're not telling you to be famous. We're just saying like, share a little bit of your wisdom. You maybe, but then. On the same side, though, now that I'm talking about it, they probably don't want to give away all their secrets, right? Like their coaching secrets that people are paying them to hear. Correct. And maybe her opponent will remember this for next time and have a different strategy because she heard what Philip DeHaye said to Kasatkina on the changeover after watching it back on Twitter. You know, I don't know. There's a little bit there. So I was watching Coco play Madison in the U.S. Open um, in the semis, and... Um, Pam Shriver comes up to Pat Cash, Coco's coach, and starts asking, like, so, you know, what's uh, what's the plan today against Madison? And Pat looks at her and he's like, I'm not going to tell you that, Pam. And just totally changed the subject, like not in a nasty way, but she just had to keep com- her composure as well because she's asking a question that he totally denied it. Like, absolutely not. I'm not going to tell you how we're going to play you know, her opponent, that's, that's for us to know and for you to find out and figure out. And even, um, Madison, a few years ago when she was playing, I can't remember who she was playing, but Lindsay Davenport came out she was playing in Stanford and, uh, she's like, just keep hitting to that spot. Okay. You know, that spot that we talked about. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That spot. They wouldn't say which spot it was, but if you went and saw the match right after, you could see which part they were, which spot they were targeting. Yeah, there's a little bit of strategy. I, th- I think that's totally fair, though. You want to protect your secrets to a certain point. You don't want to let it all hang out there, especially if it's before the match. I mean, I respect Pam Shriver and ESPN trying to get coach interviews because that stuff, that content is awesome. But sometimes you can't expect the coach to like spill all their juicy secrets and their strategy. That's not going to happen. And even, even on court, it might not happen because they'll use it against her next time. I mean, there's a little bit of, I think there's a little bit more going in there than, hey, the coach is going to walk out there and just talk nonsense for a minute and a half. I mean, these aren't, these are professionals. Right. Of course, you have to go out there and actually have some sort of clue because if you don't, you're going to get fired. That's just the reality of the situation. Very real reality. I mean, the coaches get switched around so often. Like the next few weeks, there'll be so many changes. It's It's coming. But people talk a lot about how other sports have coaches on on hand at all times, like boxing and football and basketball. But, I mean, I think there's a difference. I think tennis is unique because it's kind of one-on-one. But I still still want to have the chance to call the coach out just equal across the board. That's my only only two cents. Well, your opinion is noted. (laughs) (laughs) On the Tennis.com podcast, the opinion has been noted. Okay, that's it for this episode of Inside the Tour on the Tennis.com podcast. Thanks for listening. I've been Nina Hinton. And I've been Irina Fogel. Thanks for listening. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.